your life's work is carrying on and living the legacy of your grandfather. That's right. Good evening for 27 years, six months and six days he had been a prisoner. During that time he became a legend, a symbol of black resistance to apartheid and to many he became a martyr. Tonight he is a free man. Nelson Mandela, the leader of the African National Congress, he walked out of a prison on a gloriously sunny South African afternoon. And there is general agreement that his freedom begins a new era in South Africa. I feel free today. Ah, it's going to change the country a lot. In what way? Uh, by freedom of speech and equal rights. Herman voters rule in a united, democratic, and non-racial South Africa is the only way to peace and racial harmony. Welcome to Great Minds, the podcast. Today our guest is the founder of the Mandela Institute for Humanity and an extraordinary special person. Our guest today, Andaba Mandela. Welcome, Andaba. Thank you. How are you? One day after school, you know, I was at home. My parents hadn't gone uh, home from work yet. I was playing marbles with my friends outside the house. And this black BMW rolled up, 7 Series, old school. And a gentleman with a suit came out and he came to me and he said, Are you Naba? And I said, yes. He said, um, I have been sent by your grandfather to come and pick you up. Let's go. And I, I was completely shocked. I said, no, I'm not going with you. And he said, do you have an idea who your grandfather is? Do you want me to get fired? In the back of my mind, I was thinking stranger danger. The man continued and tried and tried and eventually he gave up and he left. And so when my parents got home that evening, I told my father what had transpired. And my father says to me, well, if that man comes back again, you should go with him. Funny enough, that man returned later that week. And so I jumped in the car and off we went from Soweto, where I was living in the ghetto, to a leafy white suburb in northern Johannesburg. And it was a electronic gates that opened up and in we went and it was this big white house and you know got inside and there were so many people there was security there was ladies cleaning cooking the whole shebang and um i waited a bit while i was waiting my mom i met her for the first time that day who was my grandfather's chef and she fixed me up one of the most amazing sandwiches i'll never forget that and about an hour later my grandfather came and sat down and he said, Daba, um, well, I have, I'm sending your parents to university because they never had the opportunity to have an education. And education, as you know, is the most important thing to build your future. And so I don't want them to worry about you while they're at university, so you will stay with me. And that week, I moved in with my grandfather at the age of about 11 years old. And that was about 12 to six months before he became president in 1994. And, you know, that's, it was me and him and my cousin Rochelle in the house. But I was the only young person in the house. And my grandfather was very strict. You know, he wanted, he would walk past my room and see it was untidy. 
And he would call me wherever I was. He said, how can you live like a pig? You can't be living like a pigsty. This is how you fold your clothes. Make sure that everything is in its place. And he actually showed me how to fold clothes, how to do the bed, you know? And um, I realized that this man is a very organized, very, you know, he's a general. He, he knows what he wants, how he wants it, when he wants it, you know? And his, his, his greatest concern was my education, how I was doing for school. And so I realized quickly that if I have to ask him for money for anything, it had to be related to school. Otherwise, he wouldn't, he wouldn't give it, you know. So that's the kind of relationship we had at the beginning. It was very rough, you know, um, very much about school. And we didn't really talk about anything else. It was only later in life when I became a man, according to my culture, when you go to the mountain, and you remove your foreskin, that's between the ages of 16 to 18 in my culture. And after that, he started engaging me and, and exposing me, and he'd invite me to lunch. You know, there'd be Bishop Tutu there. There'd be, you know, all these dignitaries and celebrities that would come over. And that's when he, you know, started actually listening to my opinion. But before that, you know, being a traditional African man... Kids don't know anything about anything. Kids need to be told what to do, when to do. And that is a very traditional African sort of culture. And only when I became a man, they then allow me to, you know, contribute to the conversations that were happening on the dinner table or lunch table. And did he help guide you for your own education? Well, he never pushed me to study anything particular. All he wanted to do was, Daba, after school, you must get a degree. After the degree, you must get an honors degree and you must get a PhD. You must get the highest level of education. Right. You understand? This was his primary concern for me. Right. Right. And you must have been exposed at a very young age to a lot of great minds. You mentioned uh, Bishop Tutu. That's right. Who were some of the early memories of you remember of, of you'd walk into the living room or the dining room and you would find who you know, sitting there? I mean, I met Lennox Lewis. I met Mike Tyson. Um, Michael Jackson came. Your grandfather loved boxing, didn't loved he? Boxing. And he was a boxer, he wasn't was he? He was a boxer. That was yeah. his absolute favorite sport in the yeah. world. Nothing compared to boxing. He would yeah. watch soccer and he would support teams, etc. But boxing was on another level for him. Right. Because for him, when it comes to boxing, it's really, it removes all the privileges that one would have. So whether you come from a rich background or poor background, right? it's about you preparing as much as possible, studying your opponent and having a strategy to fight. And whether how much money you had, it didn't matter. It's about dedication. It's about how much you prepare yourself in order to win that fight. I want to talk about the Institute for Humanity and what you're doing around leadership. Leadership is uh, a commodity that's in very short supply in today's world, both our political leadership uh, and our business leadership in many cases. What did you learn about leadership as a young boy that today, all these years later, that you still carry with you? You know, one of the things I learned early about my grandfather, aside the fact of him telling me that I would be a leader one day, I watched him, and he was a man that 
never spoke much, but when you watch him and you see how he treats people, this for me was the pinnacle, the cornerstone of what a true leader is. As I said before, you had Muhammad Ali come to the house, Michael Jackson come to the house, all these different celebrities, Prince Harry, you name it. My grandfather treated those people the very same way he treated Mama Oli who cooked for us. Albert, who cleaned the garden. Mike, who was the, uh, the, 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 the driver. Because Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. He understood that regardless of your sex, your age, or your background, we all have the potential to achieve greatness. And you got to observe that as a very young boy. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that that stays with you. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, I know the Humanity Institute also does a lot of work around HIV, AIDS, and education. That's right. And that is also deeply personal for you. Yes. So I lost my mother first to HIV, AIDS. And then two years later, I lost my father to HIV, AIDS. And so the family gathered around to discuss what they would tell the world of how my father had passed away. And so one of my cousins, you know, raised her voice and said, well, HIV AIDS doesn't kill you. It kills your immune system. So you're unable to defend yourself against common colds, pneumonia, TB, etc. So we can say that killed him. And my grandfather replied very swiftly. And he said, no, we shall not say that. We shall simply say the life of my son was taken by HIV AIDS. We need to break the stigma of this disease. People need to understand that it's like any other disease. People need to understand that we can actually fight this disease and defeat this disease. And it was the very first time that a prominent family in South Africa, sorry, if not the continent, had actually told the true story of how their loved one had perished. And it was a moment, I believe, that really, you know, took a turn in terms of how people dealt with this disease. Nobody before that would be able to talk about it. They would, people were dying in silence. People are dying in isolation, not being able to even disclose to their loved ones about the contraction of this disease. And so, I believe my grandfather gave people the courage to be able to talk about the disease on an app open platform, put it on the table so we can be able to defeat it because you cannot defeat something if you're not going to be able to be open about it. Yeah. We, we, were, we do a lot of work around mental health and yes. we started at Advertising Week with a group called the Child Mind Institute, which is a not-for-profit leading advocate for young people in mental health in the United States. And we started with them, the great minds think unalike conversation during Advertising Week here in New York. Right. In the first year, we had Emma Stone. Mm. And then this past year, we had Jesse Eisenberg. And in both cases, it was the first time they talked about their own struggles mm. with anxiety and with mental health. And it was exactly what your grandfather said, you have to talk about it. Yeah. That's the first step yeah. towards action. Towards action, towards reconciliation, towards mediation. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the Institute for Humanity. What are your goals? You have a terrific team based here in New York, and you have a lot of ambition for the Institute. Let's talk about your vision for it. So in 
2018, we celebrated the 100 years of the life and legacy of Nelson Mandela. And I thought about how do we continue this legacy with young people? Because young people do not know the story of Nelson Mandela as much as me and you do. And I said to myself, we need to find a way to inspire young people to understand the values of Nelson Mandela so that they can lead like Nelson Mandela. We have a huge problem of leadership in the world today. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we had more Mandelas or more leaders that led like Nelson Mandela? And so I said, well, we need to work with young people. You know, we take kids, whether it's from 25 to 35, who are already doing amazing things in their community. And we bring them to South Africa. They walk in the footsteps of, of Nelson Mandela, where he was born where he, he grew up and he learned his first lessons of leadership because his father died at the age of nine years old when he was nine years old. Hmm. And so he moved to go stay with his uncle, the king. And that is where he learned his first leadership, you know, because they have to listen to all the issues of society. People bring all the different problems and they would have to take a decision on how to remedy whatever you know, issue or challenge those people were facing. So it's like a tribal court, so to speak. And he was, he actually hid because they were not allowed to actually be in those sessions. So they hid behind the kraal. The kraal is like where the, um, where the animals stay, the cows or the sheep, etc. you know? Um, so my grandfather actually learned his leadership style values from a young age from when he moved to go live with the king. You talk about humility, you talk about discipline, resilience, integrity. Um, you know, these are the values that Nas Mandela holds very dear. I remember a time when I was young, he said to me, Ndaba, you must never drive a Jaguar because then people will know you have money. Hmm. And I was like, but granddad, you used to drive a Mercedes Benz. That's, that's, that's like more or less on the same level. I was a little bit confused, but I realized that for their generation, a Jaguar was like the creme de la creme. Right, you right, know? right. Yeah. And he would always have these little things to tell me. I remember once, it was just me and him at dinner time, and he said to me, Daba, you are my grandson. Therefore, people will look at you as a leader. Therefore, you must get the best marks in class. And I was like, whoa, 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 pressure, pressure, granddad, I'm not ready for that. I'm too young. I'm in... I mean, I'm in grade eight, for goodness sake. Right, you know? right. But he didn't waste no time. He didn't, pull, he didn't hold any punches. He wanted to, me know, to know from early age that whether you like it or not, my son, whether you become an accountant, whether you become a lawyer, or even choose a, a life of being a sportsman, you are going to be a leader no matter where you go. And this is what I'm raising you to become. Fantastic. So there are two things that, um, that I know about your grandfather. One is his passion, which you've been talking about, and the importance of education as the pathway forward. Yes. The other was that the real measure of a life is what you do to enrich the lives of others. Yes. And I think part of what you're trying to do with the Institute is follow that to create more Mandelas. We have to create more Mandelas. It's not about how many billions that you have made yourself, but how many billionaires did you make? 
You understand what I'm saying? I Today do. we're in a world of egos and obsession and I have the biggest, fastest car. Leadership is not about being the best or being number one. Leadership is about serving your community, standing up for those who cannot stand for themselves, speaking for those who do not have a voice. That is what leadership is about. And now we look and there seems to be a awakening in the corporate world about the importance of connecting to community. Mm. We talked earlier about Paul Pullman and Unilever and how as CEO, he embraced the environment and, and building brands around sustainability. Mm. And we talked about Larry Fink and, and my dear friend, Frank Cooper, the CMO over at BlackRock. And Frank is trying to carry out Larry Fink's vision mm. that corporate America needs to realize their responsibility around not just climate change, but around business and purpose. Yes. In your conversations with CEOs, do you see an awakening there? To be honest with you, well, not yet. I think it's 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 coming slowly. You know, um, not many people, to be honest with you, are understand the value of impact work or impact investing. You know, I spoke to a gentleman the other day who has over three thousand clients in the financial services business, mm-hmm. and he tries to get those clients to invest in impact work, but he told right. me that. Less than 5% of his clients are interested in impact work. Right. So I think it's still a, a, a part of business that still needs to grow. Right. You know, people are still too obsessed with material possessions and, and, and profit and, you know, oh, me, I want to be like Jeff Bezos. Oh, me, I want to be like this guy. Right. No, it's about the community. Yeah, I, you know, it's easy to admire a guy like, you know, Bill Gates and his wife, Melinda, what they do at the Gates Foundation. Amazing. But he steps in and what he has done, Warren Buffett, to ensure that all of their money goes towards trying to help. Mm. And many others, I mean, Bezos just put up some money, I think, for the first time, um, charitable. I think it was for the climate. But that's, he that's has sad. been wildly not charitable. That is very sad. Uh, so talk a little bit more specifically about what the Institute is doing, where it is now, and where you see it going. So we have the leadership program where we're going to be taking young people to South Africa and teaching them about the values and the leadership style of Nelson Mandela. And we hope to build a new generation of, of Nelson Mandela-like leaders. We also, of course, are fighting against the HIV AIDS epidemic. Our particular angle is that we want to distribute home testing kits so that people can be testing in the privacy and the comfort and security of their own home. Right. But of course, there'll be a step-by-step guide in the kit that'll say, okay, here, you've tested positive. This is the number you call. You have a social worker who will guide you as to, okay, now you need to get medicine. Now you need to come and talk to me to realize that you can still live your full-time life expectancy on HIV-AIDS as long as you have access to the medicine. Our government has subsidized ARVs and all medicine. So it's not expensive at all now, you know, to get access to this medicine because, you know, it has ravaged the country of Africa, our community. We have a whole generation now of child-headed households because of this, uh, this epidemic. And ultimately, you know, because there's such a vacuum of leadership, 
in this world. We believe that we have the capacity to unite people, to inspire people, and to build a better world. And and Daba, beyond uh, a pretty big inspirational leader that you began with in your grandfather, who else today, what are the other great minds that you look to? Where do you draw your inspiration? Um, You know, I have to give kudos to Barack Obama, great leader, first black president of America, not a single scandal, both terms, yeah. came out like a shining star. He sure did. I have to salute that man. He sure did. Um, you know, unfortunately, there aren't that many leaders in today's world that we can actually say these are exemplary leaders. You mm-hmm. know, it's unfortunate. What about your president now? How is he doing, President I Ramaphosa? Think, I think he's doing okay. I think his mind and his heart is in the right place. Uh, but I believe we need to support him to be able to take bold steps uh, in, in really, you know, trying to grow the economy of South Africa and getting out of the recession that we are in today. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm fully behind our, pre- our current president yeah. in South Africa. Yeah, I think we're all very hopeful. Yes. That he's got certainly the right, his heart and yes. mind are in yeah. the right place. Yeah. Are you optimistic today when you wake up in the morning? Do you see the glass half full or half empty? Well, it depends on what kind of you know mood you wake up in. But I am an eternal optimist, to right. be honest with you. I mean, how could I not be optim- an optimist? Look at Nelson Mandela's life. Look at Martin Luther King. Look at John F. Kennedy. Look at, uh, you know, so many inspiring leaders out there that have come from our history. Right. You know, you talk about Lillian Goyi, which is a revolutionary female leader of the apartheid, of, of, of breaking down apartheid. You know, we have to talk about Winnie Mandela. You right. know, you talk about the heroes and heroines of our society. And looking at the history of where we come from in Africa, how can you not be an optimist when you have kids <clears throat> like Kelvin Doe from Sierra Leone who grew up in a dumpster? And ends up teaching himself how TVs and radios work. And ends up fixing TVs and radios for his community. And ends up creating his own radio station that interfered with the main radio station of the country. Right? Today, Calvin Doe is teaching classes in MIT. An 18-year-old boy who was self-taught. How can you not be optimistic when you have kids like Siak Uza who mixed his mother's kitchen uh, chemicals that she cleans with and by accident created jet fuel. And the boy was then, you know, headhunted by universities across the world. He went to UCT, then he went to Harvard. Now he's back in South Africa, starting his own business, trying to find the most efficient way to save energy. Humanity has not come up with an efficient way to actually save energy, right? How can I not be optimistic when you look at the triumph that we have come and be able to break down apartheid. Well, one of the most incredible stories in humanity of what your grandfather was able to accomplish and what the friendship is. One of his other great notions was that you must work with your enemy and that's how your enemy becomes your friend. And we could sure use a little bit of that type of leadership 
and a mind like that, you know, leading our country and and others, because there's a real vacuum right now. There's a real vacuum. And, you know, it's not going to be easy. We're going to have to dig deep. We're going to have to be patient. We're going to have to be open-minded and be patient and trying, you know, you know, solutions that may not work, but as long as you keep on trying. But it begins with great leadership and passion and commitment. That's correct. And you have that, Ndaba. Thank you. Thank you. Thank well, you. our guest today was the extraordinary Andaba Mandela, founder of the Mandela Institute for Humanity. Andaba, thanks so much for being here. Matt, thank you very much. You have been a great host. All right. The resources of the country are monopolized by the white minority. We don't have resources. How would we be expected uh, to rehabilitate the political uh, uh, exiles, which are coming back, who want jobs, who want accommodation, who want educational facilities for their children? How do we rebuild the ANC, which has been banned for 30 years? How do we mobilize the entire country for peace if we don't have the resources? We cannot generate those resources uh, from inside the country. And it's but natural for us to approach the international community for assistance in this regard. Who, come back to sanctions now, who is the chief target of your anxiety? Which country are you most worried might want to relax sanctions? We don't want to deal with the situation.